All right, let's open up the Bible together. We are at 2 Samuel chapter 12. If you're visiting, we are going through, uh, we went through 1 Samuel and now we're in 2 Samuel. If you don't have a Bible, I would encourage you to pick one up over at the resource table so you can follow along with us. But we are at 2 Samuel chapter 12. And we'll end up over the course of the sermon, we'll read the whole passage. But right now, uh, we will, we will start in the very beginning, but we're at 2 Samuel chapter 12. By show of hands, who here has ever experienced consequences for actions? Raise your hands. All right, why are some people's hands not up? Because we go, I mean, that's something we know, right? Consequences are something that we're accustomed to from a young age. You disobey your parents, you're probably going to experience some form of discipline, whatever that might be in your particular house. You get a little older, you break laws, you're going to probably experience some form of discipline, whether it's a ticket, jail, whatever the case is. You don't study for an exam, the consequence might be what? You get a bad grade on the exam. You don't do the homework, you might end up having bad grades. You eat unhealthy all the time. You're probably going to gain weight. I mean, those are those things where we are used to consequences as a result of our actions. There are results from what we do or we don't do. An outcome will inevitably follow our efforts. The question is whether it's a good outcome or a bad outcome, but outcomes are going to naturally follow our actions. And that's what we're going to see today in chapter 12. We're going to see the consequences for sins, and we're going to see that they result in judgment and discipline, but those in Christ, those in covenant with God, still have hope. Though their sins are many, as we just sung, his mercy is more. So that's what we're going to consider in chapter 12, the grace that is greater than all of our sin in Jesus Christ. As I mentioned last week, I think it's one of the saddest chapters in all of the Bible, God's you know, man after God's own, own heart commits adultery, has a man murders. I would argue in some sense this week is one of the more encouraging chapters of the Bible because God is not done with David. It's soaked and saturated in grace. And I think that's going to be a word of comfort for each and every one of us because we need that kind of grace and that kind of mercy. Uh, if you're taking notes, we're going to see God's grace in three ways in our passage today. To begin with, we're going to see there's grace in a confrontation. Uh, and it, that doesn't seem like you would expect grace there, but it is God's grace intervening. It's God's grace stepping in and not allowing David to go any further than he already has. Second thing we're going to see is grace through consequences. We're going to see grace through consequences that God punishes, God disciplines, and it's actually a good thing for David. And then lastly, we'll see God's grace in second chances that he is not done with David. So let's begin as we see God's grace in a confrontation. Uh, we need to recap a little bit from last week. If you're unfamiliar with the story, you weren't here, here's what happened. As I mentioned, this is, this is David. A man after God's own heart is what the Bible says. This is David, the guy that, that killed Goliath. This is, this is David that's wrote a ton of the Psalms that you and I read. 
So that David, he's supposed to be out at war because that's where kings are supposed to be at the time of the story. And instead, and we don't know why, was he bored? Was he overconfident? For whatever reason, he sent his military, he sent his soldiers to battle. And David, who was a king, and that's one of his main jobs to protect the people, he stayed back home. So he's back home. David gets bored. He ends up walking around the roof of his palace. And sure enough, off in the distance, he can see a beautiful woman bathing. He's intrigued. He sends a messenger, figures out who she is. He finds out that this is Bathsheba, uh, the daughter of Iliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Uriah the Hittite was one of David's mighty men. So David knew Uriah. And this was God saying, this is somebody's wife. David doesn't care. And it's very kind of coarse, crass language. He saw, he took, he sent, he, he lay with her. And then all of a sudden she gets a message to David not too long after, I'm pregnant. So, I mean, from there, if the story ended there, this is a really tragic story. But it's not even close to done. So what David starts doing, he starts thinking, okay, I messed up bad. Here's how I'm going to fix it. I'm going to have Uriah come back from the, the battle. I'm going to orchestrate events that he's going to end up staying the night with his wife. And when she ends up having this baby, it's going to be obvious that this is Uriah's son. Problem fixed. Nobody will know about my indiscretion. Unfortunately for David, Uriah is a man of integrity He's a man of character, and he refuses to go. He argues the Ark of the Covenant's in a tent, Joab's in a tent, Israel's in tents. They're out in the field. They're, they're at risk. There is no way that I am going to go and live it up and spend time with my wife. It's not happening. So David says, okay, I'll send you, we'll say one more night. The next night, David's like, I've got the idea. You know what I need to include? I need to include alcohol. I'm going to get him drunk, and then, of course, he's going to go. Well, even drunk Uriah is still a man of integrity. He doesn't go. So at that point, David has given up hope that he's going to orchestrate the event, that it looks like this is actually Uriah's kid. So then he, he writes a letter to Joab, and he says, Joab, I want you to put him in the most fierce battle, and I want you to remove from him so he's killed. And that's what happens. He ends up having Uriah killed. And then the, the shocking thing in all of it is he tells Joab, don't be displeased. In other words, things happen. The sword devours one or the other. Things happen. Hey, it stinks that Uriah died, even though I told you to have him killed. But life will go on. We're fine. But then the very end of the chapter, and this is where we're kind of picking up at chapter 12, but the thing that the Lord, that David had done, displeased the Lord. So David told him, don't be displeased. But unfortunately, the one that matters the most was always already very displeased. So that's where we pick up. That's kind of, so really like these story, this story is like a cohesive unit. So we're picking up now chapter 12. Let's read verse 1. And it said, the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, and then he's going to tell this parable. Notice who sent. 
It's the Lord. God is intervening in the story. This is important for us to grasp. Chapter 11, there was multiple things that were sent. David sent. David sent. Bathsheba sent. Joab sent. But now Yahweh is sending. And he sends a prophet. He sends Nathan. He sends this message. Now we don't know the length of time of what has just happened. The only thing we do know is the child has been born. So at the very least, David has went unrepentant for the course of a pregnancy. But it's possible that the child might even be a little bit older than simply a newborn baby. They're, 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 in the language, it doesn't directly say the baby was born, Nathan came. So think about that. They might even have started getting more and more attached to the baby and, and, and watching the baby grow and develop, and then all of a sudden, this message comes. But what God is doing is he is intervening. He is graciously stepping in because David is on a path of destruction. Do you understand that? Imagine you and I, we are in some country, I don't know where it would be. Let's say we're in South America. We're in, in South America, maybe Brazil. We're on a river. As we're going down the river, we're on a canoe. We can hear a lot of noise. And you start thinking, like, what is that noise? It's, it's really loud, and it's like, sounds like lots of water and stuff. And then as we're going down the river, there's a person off on the shores, and he's saying, hey, you need to stop going. In about a mile, this river ends in a waterfall that drops 100 feet. Are we going to be glad? Are we going to be grateful that that person on the side is warning us of this upcoming destruction that awaits for us? Yes, we are. And that's what God is doing here. Do you understand that? This is God's grace reaching out to a sinner in the midst of his sin. That's the important thing for us to grasp here. Ephesians 2, 4, it says, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved. Friends, what God is doing here with Nathan is what he has done with each and every one of us. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ. You are dead in your sins. You are a slave to sin. You are lost. No matter how, how scandalous your life was. You're either for God or against, and before you knew Christ, you were against, and God intervened. God brought the gospel into your life. God spoke through his word. God spoke through a person through his word. Whatever the case was, it's God's grace intervening. What do you see God's grace in the rebuke? Are you grateful that God pursues you? Think about that. Because he doesn't just intervene. We see instruction here. So go to verse 2. So it says, The rich man had very many flocks. Oh, there were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. And at this point, David doesn't know if this is a real story or not. David might be hearing this because his other responsibility besides protecting the people is what? To rule the people. 
So this might be a real court case to David that David's going to have to deal with. So listen to it. There were two men in a certain city, the one rich, the other poor. The rich man had many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. And it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or a herd to prepare for the guests who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man and said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity." See, the beauty of what God is doing through Nathan is he's forcing Nathan to to go in a way that David is going to be the one that grasps the the story. Because it would have been really easy for Nathan, right, to show up and say, David, what you did was wicked. It was evil. It was wrong. David probably could have got defensive. He's like, well, I, I didn't know. You know, you let me have all these other wives. What's another wife? It's, it's not really my fault. But that's not what he does. He gives him a story that hits home. What was David's job? What was David's responsibility before he ever became a king? What was he? He was a shepherd. So David knew what it was like to care for the sheep. David, I guarantee David knew what it was like to love the sheep. Remember, he, David even shares in stories that there was times where an animal would come and take one of the sheep and he would put himself at harm's way to go protect and save because he cared for those sheep. He loved those sheep. So when he hears this story, he has a heart for the person who has the one sheep, who has the one lamb. Because he knows what it felt like to care for that lamb. And what we're going to see is in the midst of it, he sees God's grace exposing his sin. And then in verse 7, it says, Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you out of the hand of Saul and I gave you master's house and your master's wives into your arms and I gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if that were too little, I would have added more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have stuck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites." Notice what God says David did. You sinned. You scorned me. You disrespected me. You despised me. I, um, we've never had a, a U.S. flag at our house. Uh, I've considered having one. I'm very patriotic. Part of the reasons I haven't is, to be honest with you, I'm afraid I'm going to do something wrong. There's lots of proper etiquette involved with a flag, like when it's supposed to be up, when it's not, if you take it down, what you do. And I feel like I'm, I'm guaranteeing I'm botching this. 
and I, and I don't want to disrespect it. I, I want to uh, value and esteem it for what it stands for and represents. So I just don't because I'm, I'm lazy and incompetent. Do you see, like, the idea of respect, of reverence, that is, that is the problem here, friends, with David. He sinned against God, and he didn't care. I mean, listen to the language. You despised me. You, you despised my word. You did evil. You scorned the Lord. And that's what sin is. I think we need to wrap our minds around that. We need to understand the weight of sin. I think one of the biggest problems amongst us as Christians, as followers of Christ, as the church, is we have such a low view of sin, therefore we have a low view of our Savior. We view sin as kind of like imperfections in our life, some of those personality traits, those natural tendencies that, you know, I'm not proud of it, but... I'm a hothead, that's who I am, or I gossip, I just, I, I, I kind of do that, and it's, no, it, it, every sin that we are participating, all of them, it's scorning the Lord, it's disrespecting the Lord, it's hating on the Lord, it is evil. Remember Joseph, he looks at Potiphar's wife and he's like, how could I do such a wicked thing and sin against the Lord? Psalm 51 which David writes after this, you know what he says? I've sinned against you. I've sinned against you, God. At the end of the day, yeah, I sinned against Bathsheba. I sinned against Uriah. I sinned against the people of Israel. But at the end of the day, my sin is against God. And then we see Nathan in all this. How courageous. We've seen David commit adultery and have a man murdered. How confident are you to go to, Nathan, to David as Nathan and call him out in his sin? I'm not. As I read that story, I'm like, yeah, he's going to probably kill me when he hears that. And that's what he still does. He goes and he, he calls him out. Proverbs 27.5 says, better is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. One, are you open to rebuke? Is it fun to have somebody call you out in your sin? I mean, that's what you want, right? That's the best. I was sharing like last night at my life group, least favorite thing I do pastorally is those times I've had to do that. Some people like it in leadership. They like the power trip of it. It's awkward. It's uncomfortable. And to be honest with you, I look at my own life and I see my own imperfections. I see my own uh, problems and who who am I? You can kind of rationalize. I can't call this person out because I'm not perfect. But then secondly, do you grasp what your sin is? I mean, do you spend time in confession? Do Do you look, do you examine your heart? Friends, if you're ever going to have an exalted view of Christ, you're going to have to have a high view of sin for what it is. Sin isn't just the big stuff. Murder, adultery, you know, some of those, and like, oh, that's obviously sin. Like, we, we, we sin all the time, sins of omission. What's the greatest commandment? Love God with all your heart, with all of your soul, 
with all of your mind, with all of your strength. If you failed that command this week, guess what? Guilty of sin. Let's move on to the next one. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you failed to love your neighbor as yourself this week, guess what? Guilty as a sin, as a sinner. Friends, we gotta, we gotta stop just shrugging off sin that it's not a big deal. Or abuse God's grace and it's like, I got Jesus, so it doesn't matter. Sin matters. As we're gonna see, the consequences are gonna be great when it comes to David. So we see grace in a confrontation. Now let's look at grace through consequences. Read verse nine with me. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you've despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, but I will do this very thing before all Israel and before the sun. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because of this deed, you have utterly scorned the Lord. The child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. First of all, he's going to learn from the repercussions. Because what we're going to see in all of this is sin never is worth it. Did you hear that? I mean, sin's never worth it. Here's the reality. If, if you were to do this before you sinned, if you busted out a dry erase board and you did the pros and cons of committing the sin you're about to sin, I guarantee, now you might be able to rationalize and come up with a, with a pros but if you really grasp sin, the cons are always going to outweigh. I guarantee if David was here, David would say, not worth it. It wasn't worth it. It wasn't worth it. Proverbs 5.3 says, for the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey. Do you hear that? They drip honey. Her, her speech is smoother than oil. Those are all very enticing things, right? But it goes on and says, but in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword, and severe consequences are given right here. He says, remember, he's already talked about building up David's house. Do you remember that? And it wasn't a building we're talking about. He's going to build up his line and lineage. Now he's going to talk about the house, and he's going to say the sword will never leave the house. Galatians 6, 7, for the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. And that's what ends up happening. It's a mess. As we, after the holidays, we'll pick back up at chapter 13 and it starts off with a son killing a son after a son raped a daughter. That's David's life. That's how messed up his family and his life comes. A little bit later, his son, Absalom, tries to kill him because he wants to take over the throne. This is all a direct ramification for David's one moment, his one indiscretion with Bathsheba and all the subsequent sins that followed as a result. And notice what he deserves in all of it. 
He deserves to die, and yet what does God promise? I have put away your sin. You will not die. Do you see the grace? I mean, David himself said, what should happen to the guy who did what he did? He should surely die. And God comes in and says, you're not going to die. I'm going to extend grace. Psalm 51, David writes this later. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. He says that I have dealt with your sin. Isn't that the good news that we celebrate? Isn't it? That I'm not going to die. I mean, I'm going to die at some point. But I'm not going to experience that second death because as a follower of Christ, for to me to live as Christ and to die is gain. When I die, I'm going to be in the presence of Almighty God for all eternity. And it's the only reason that's happening is because of what? Because of God's grace. Yet we see in the midst of all this, there's still consequences for his actions. We ask, does David get what he deserves? Do you and I get what we deserve? Praise the Lord, we don't. So he learns these valuable lessons, but then he goes on beyond that. And it, not only does he learn from these repercussions, he leads, it leads to repentance. Well, actually, go back up at verse 13, because I just want to recap what he just said. He said, I have sinned against the Lord. And then go down to verse 15. David went to his house. The Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. David therefore sought God on behalf of the child, and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. And the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. On the seventh day, the child died, and the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him, and he would not listen. How then can we say to him, The child is dead? He may do himself some harm. When David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. And David said to his, his servants, Is the child dead? They said, He is dead. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshiped. He then went to his own house. And when he asked, they set food before him and he ate. Then his servants said to him, What is this thing that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive. But when the child died, you rose and ate food. He said, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept for I said, who knows? Well, the Lord might be gracious to me that the child may live. But now he's dead, why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. So we see a change in David's heart, right? And isn't it a good change that we see? There's a difference. I think at this point, like we've talked about even last week, David committing adultery with Bathsheba was a slow, steady decline spiritually. It was a slow hardening of the heart. It was a slow callousness over time that he got to a point that he could be told this is somebody's daughter, this is somebody's wife, and not even think twice. He could commit adultery. He could have a dear soldier of his murdered to try to cover up his sin. He was in a bad place. But after this confession, after this conviction, we see a change. I remember my first car, 
uh, it was a Buick Supreme SL. It was $300. It was high end. And it was so poorly aligned that if I moved my hand off the steering wheel, it was like, I'm not even joking. It was bad. We did not pay to get it aligned. I, I don't even know if it lasted a month, maybe two. It was bad. It was bad. But when you have an alignment issue, what do you need to have done? You need to have it aligned properly so when you drive, you're not naturally, you're not, you're not fighting the steering wheel to keep it on the road. And I think what we see happening here, by the grace of God, even though there's consequences, is God realigns David with him. There's a difference. There's a change. He seeks the Lord. I mean, that's what he needed. Where was this David the night or the day in which he had an affair with Bathsheba? It would have changed everything. Actually, if we had this David here, he would have been out at battle and the thing would have never happened in the first place. Now, in the midst of all of it, the child dies in place of David. The Bible doesn't talk much about that as far as is that supposed to be viewed kind of like the gospel, Jesus died in our behalf. But there are some similarities, so I don't want to completely ignore that, that the child dies even though David was the one that really deserved to die for his actions. But then it says, uh, they're, they're confused that he doesn't seem to keep mourning after the child dies. And notice what he says, why? He says, because there was always still a chance. There was still a possibility that God was going to step in and save this child. So I pled with him. But now that the child is dead, it's it's not going to undo what happened. Now, some people argue what he says here means all babies go to heaven. It's possible. Bible doesn't speak clearly on that. I think when we start talking about children, I think when we start talking about those that are severely handicapped, I think as Christians, what we do is we rest in the goodness of God. I'm not going to speak confidently on something that the Bible doesn't speak great clarity. Because right here, one of two things David is saying. He's saying that I'm going to die too, or I'm going to see him one day in heaven. But there's not great clarity there, so I'm not going to speak clarity in something that's not clear. But we can, as always, what? Rest in the goodness of God. But notice the, the hope of grace in all of this, that there's a possibility that he might be gracious to me. Psalm 51, verse 14, deliver me from blood guiltness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. He's resting in God's goodness. Are you resting in the goodness? I think one of the most beautiful things that we see in all of this is what did he go do after the child died? Did you catch that when we were reading it? He went to the house of the Lord and worshiped. And I think there's something, there's a principle there that you and I need to to get our minds around that we need to embrace is when even at your lowest point, that might be the best time for you to go and worship God. We don't simply go to worship. We don't come to church when everything is going well. Like, I'm in the mood to come because life is great and 
and, you know, everybody's healthy and, and finances are awesome and marriage and our kids and, you know, I'm in a good mood. I feel like worshiping God. You know, you remember Job lost all of his kids, was physically afflicted, and he says what? The Lord gives and the Lord takes. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Friends, we got we to stop being fair weather worshipers. We need to be a people that we worship God on the good days, we worship on the bad days. Because that's who we're created to be. Would well, you allow God to use discipline to change, to transform? So we've seen grace in his confrontation. We've seen grace in the consequences. And then lastly, we see grace in second chances. So let's read verse 24. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went into her and lay with her. And she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon. And the Lord loved him and sent a message by Nathan the prophet. So he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. First of all, God of second chances, the line goes on. God's promise has not been canceled out. Isn't that good news? I made a Christmas purchase with Nike two weeks ago, three weeks ago. I get an email last week. They're like, we canceled your order. I'm like, what? So I spent an hour on the phone dealing with Nike. They're like, yeah, we never had the inventory when you placed the order. And I'm like, you're Nike. I'm like, you're not a mom and Paul shop. I'm like, there's no reason why you don't know the numbers and the inventory and everything. But it was just kind of like, you, you, like we made an agreement. We had a kind of a contract, so to speak. Like, I, I paid for this. You charged me. It's like, well, we're giving your money back. I'm like, spectacular. Like, I want the item. Like, we made a deal. God doesn't back out of his deal. Isn't that shocking? God could totally back out of the deal, wouldn't you think? Like, if, if there's ever been a reason to change path on a promise, David gave the reason. 2 Samuel seven eleven. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. That was the promise. David messes up really bad, and guess what? The promise still goes on. There's no sin clause with God on his promises. Isn't that encouraging? When you guys screw up this week, which is going to happen, when I sin this week, it's going to happen, God doesn't pull his promise from me. God doesn't say, you know what? I'm no longer saving him. He's no longer going to heaven. He's no longer my child because he screwed up too much. No, God doesn't do that. So what do we see? We see Solomon. Isn't that the wild thing? It's through this line. Jesus comes. I mean, David's got other kids. Why not pick a less scandalous line? Because when you turn to the Matthew gospel, genealogy, it's wild. You read through it and it's like, son of this, son of that, son of that. And it says also Bathsheba, wife of Uriah the Hittite. It's like underscoring, underlining, highlighting, yeah, the illegitimate child, so to speak. 
The one that's the result of an affair ultimately. Yeah, that's the line that my son, the forever king, is going to fall through. Matthew 1, 6, Jesse, the father of David, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Doesn't look good. And yet, that's God's grace. God uses a bunch of broken, messed up sinners to carry out his plan and purpose. And then notice the language. He even says, Solomon had a name that you and I usually don't call him. We call him what? Solomon. But God gave him a name, Jedediah. Do you know what that means? Well-loved, loved by God. So in the spite of, if God doesn't condone the sin, God isn't justifying David's wickedness. And yet in the midst of all of it, there's this new child now, Solomon, that he loves. Does our sin void God's promises? Can we still have rest? So then we get to verse 26. The line goes on. Second, the leadership goes on. Now Joab fought against Rabbah of the Ammonites, and he took the royal city. And David sent messengers to to David and said, first of all, I love Joab in this. I think it's God ultimately, though, through him. But listen to what Joab says. I have fought against Rabbah. Moreover, I have taken the city of waters. Now then, gather the rest of the people together and encamp against the city and take it, lest I take this city and it be called by the name. You know what he's translation saying? David, get up. Get off your behind. Get out here. Do what you're supposed to do so we don't have this conflict now where I'm the leader and you're not. And David is awakened by his military leader. He gets up gathers the people, went to Rabbah, fought against it and took it. He took the crown of their king from his head. The weight of it was a town of gold and it was a precious stone. It was placed on David's head and he brought out the spoil of the city, a very great amount. He brought out the people who were with it and sent them to labor with saws and iron picks and iron axes and made them toil at the brick kilns. And thus he did to all the cities of the Ammonites. Then David and all the people returned to Jerusalem. God is not done with David. I mean, think about it. You make mistakes in our world, in the workforce, what do we want done? Coworker keeps making mistakes, keep messing up. What should be done with that person? Say it. Fire them. In the words of Trump, right? You're fired. Or is, is that what he said? You're fired. I don't know that with the apprentice years ago, pre-presidency. Like fire. Ohio State didn't play well yesterday, right? Everybody's saying what? Ryan Day. Fire him. I mean, that's kind of thing. You look at David, let's be honest, let's be brutal. We look at the train wreck of David. What do we think should happen to David? Fire him. This dude's a mess. You don't want him ruling. You don't want him as king. You know what God says? I'm not done with him. I'm in the habit of using broken, messed up people. I redeem them. I transform them. And David, he's, it's, it's a mess the rest of the way, but God keeps using David. He's not done with him yet. That's what God does. Think of the story of Jonah. Jonah flees. Was God done with Jonah? 
No, he spit him out on dry land. And he's like, okay, round two, Jonah. Go do it. Jonah 3.1, then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. Well, does God give second chances? Can you testify to that? Now I can look at my life, and there's so many times where, like, God, you are so, one of my favorite scriptures, that he is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, because he puts up with me. I struggle with putting up with people. I get impatient with people. If people would just get their act together, like, I don't have my act together. And yet God just patiently just tolerates and, and puts up and second chances. And it's the beauty of the gospel. My, my, my boys specifically, I've referenced this book series before, but they always do. I don't know why. Maybe it's just a boy thing. Always trying to pit animals against each other. Like what would happen if we had an alligator go against a chicken? And I'm like, and then my Zach is like, hear me out. Chickens are pretty fast. Like I know if the alligator bites it, but I feel like the chicken could outrun the alligator. There's actually a book series Killer whale, great white shark, tarantula, scorpion, hyena, badger. It's lots of hypothetical. It's not like they're doing fights. It's not like they bring two items, two these things together. Let's see who wins. Well, I think we've been watching a battle go on right now in the last two chapters. Chapter 11, we saw sin. The animal of sin. And when we end chapter 11... Doesn't it feel like sin is one? Doesn't it feel like sin has conquered, is, sin has been victorious? Look at the damage it's done. But you see, then we get to chapter 12. So we got the killer whale over here, we got the great white shark, we got sin over here, and we got grace. We got grace over here. And when we get done with chapter 12, who won? Who won? Did sin win? No. Grace won. Grace won because the line's going on. King Jesus is still coming. We're going to sing a song uh, we haven't sang before, but I want to read the lyrics because I think it, it, it sums up the reality of this. Marvelous grace of our loving Lord, grace that exceeds our sin and guilt. Yonder on Calvary's mount upward, there where the blood of the lamb was spilt. Dark is the stain that we cannot hide. What can avail to wash it away? Look, there is flowing a crimson tide, whiter than snow you may be today. Marvelous, infinite, matchless grace, freely bestowed on all who believe, all who are longing to see his face, will you this moment his grace receive. Grace grace, God's grace, grace that will pardon and cleanse within, grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all of our sin. Friends, the consequences of our sin is judgment and discipline. It's inevitable. But those in Christ, those in covenant with God still have hope. Our sin is great but our grace in God is greater than all of our sin. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we come right now, uh, even as we 
wrap up our time in your word and as we respond through song, uh, I, I pray for each of us that we would really uh, meditate, reflect, bask in, in the, the glorious truth that your grace is greater than all of my sin. For many of us, we come here today, we're, we're overwhelmed with guilt, shame, remorse over how often we do not uh, obey you, how often we do not uh, line up and match with what we should be in Christ. But we thank you, God, and we rejoice and we rest in Jesus. We thank you that his grace is greater than all of our sin. So we rest in him today. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand as we respond.